0: You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey team, this is the Buck Sexton Show and on this episode we have Amber Athey with us now. She is the Washington editor of The Spectator. She's a writer, columnist, author. In fact, she's got a book that is just on the, on the new shelves out there, I guess on the shelves, and it's a new book on them called Snowflakes Revolt. We are going to talk to Amber about that and some other important stuff going on now. Amber, good to see you again. How you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the program, Buck.
0: Let's talk about the snowflakes, shall we? Because we don't hear that term a lot anymore. Not as much as we used to. And then we saw the uh, Stanford Law School... The the antics, the lunacy, the acting like a, a room full of spoiled children, but shouting a lot of curses at uh, the federal judge, Judge Duncan. And I think snowflakes maybe is a thing we have to bring back now, because how else do you describe law students who shout down a federal judge who has been invited to their university to speak?
1: <laughs> right. It's uh, It's a term that's kind of considered gauche now, but... I'm almost using it tongue in cheek in the book's title because the whole premise of this book is that conservatives really got it wrong in a lot of our commentary about what would happen to these crazy campus activists. A lot of us kind of thought that they would get out into the real world and they would melt, so to speak, right? The, The real world would hit them in the face. They wouldn't get safe spaces and trigger warnings from their employers. And they would eventually just have to adapt or die. But instead, what happened is that they actually brought their politics with them off campus and are using a lot of the same tactics that we saw at Stanford University just recently with this speech um, from the judge that you mentioned, where they basically orchestrate mobs. They have online cancel campaigns. They use social media to shame their employers. And it's all done with the intent of trying to push every major American institution further to the left and to have um, the progressive orthodoxy that they're uh, really hammering into people uh, and silencing dissent. Um, they want that to be the way of of every single major institution and they will do anything to do it.
0: So do you think that given what we've seen with uh, some of these... Failures, whether it's of banking or of uh, FAA regulation or y- you name it. There are all these areas now where people are starting to say, hold on, if we're pushing people forward based on diversity and inclusion instead of merit, there will be problems that come from this. I, I think the thought process is that the w- the woke or the snowflakes in, in our discussion here are supposed to say, you know what, you guys are right. We won't do that anymore because the bad things are, or things could even happen that are bad as a result of this. You know, planes crashing, trains derailing, um, people who become lawyers who have not even the faintest idea of what the Constitution is or is supposed to do. Uh, but I, I would wonder, what about the position that they might take that's just, this is the cost like this is the cost of social justice because because I see this on the criminal justice front all the time, that there's a belief that the the residents, let's say, of San Francisco or even the residents of New York City who are 90 percent plus Democrat, they'll see the bad policies and they'll say, oh, man, we shouldn't have done like this is a bad idea. Well, that assumes, though, that they are going to place their safety and the safety of their city, more importantly, not necessarily their safety above their ideology. And I, I actually don't think they'll do that. I think that a lot of them just view this as, yeah, if we destroy a company with our wokeness, then fine. That's the price we pay.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I don't think that these individuals really have any sort of logical cause and effect type of conversation happening with themselves. I mean, everything goes back to racism or sexism for them. I mean, if, for example, if you uh, look at the the bank crash recently, where they were uh, apparently spending a lot of time trying to incorporate diversity, equity, and inclusion, instead of having people who would, I don't know, maybe see that the Fed was going to increase interest rates over the past couple of years. Uh, The response to that from woke activists wouldn't be, this was our fault because they were distracted. It would be something along the lines of, well, they weren't doing enough DEI, or uh, the problem is that the company was just too fundamentally racist, and even our woke activism couldn't overcome it. It's, it's the same thing with the, the criminal justice question that you're talking about, right? The problem isn't uh, that uh, that individuals are committing crimes at higher rates um, from certain communities. It's that police are too present in those communities, and therefore they're just encountering those people more often as another byproduct of racism. Like, There's no uh, explanation for anything that happens in society for them that doesn't go back to people's skin color or identity or minority status. Uh, so I don't think that they'll ever look at any any result of their ridiculous woke activism and say, oh yeah, this was our fault. Maybe we should take a step back. Uh, and uh, to your point about the lack of quality of people who are being hired um, from the woke activist class, I mean, it starts back in college, of course, because colleges have lowered admission standards and let in people who are less qualified. And that is obviously not good for the person who gets into whatever college, because if you're talking about law school, for example, then that person has a lower likelihood of passing the bar. So you're actually hurting the people you're purported to help. But let's say this person does go on to graduate college and they get hired through another affirmative action program at whatever company they work for. Well, there was a study that was written about in the Wall Street Journal last week that found a lot of these rather underqualified candidates end up becoming specialists in diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives. And why do they do that? Well, it's because it makes them unfireable. So even though they're really bad at their job or they're untalented or they're underqualified, they have this special uh, way of training the workforce That if you criticize it or go against it, you will be called a racist. And if you fire them, you will probably be sued for creating a hostile work environment. So this is a way that they've actually created institutional protection for themselves.
0: Well, also, it seems to me like how could and this this ties into the Stanford dean of diversity who, you know, verbally berated in a room full of people who were acting horribly, obviously, uh, verbally berated. Um, the Fifth Circuit Judge, uh, Judge Duncan, that it's effectively also a, a job that is it is impossible to uh, underperform, really, because the whole point is to just do grievance politics all the time. So so if you're a diversity mm-hmm. activist or a diversity educator, what are you saying? We don't have enough diversity. There's too much racism out there. So if. There's not more diversity in the university. It's not your fault because you're the one who's saying there's we need more diversity. Right. So you're always it's like there's you know, they got a fever. The only prescription um, is, you know, (laughs) is uh, is more cowbell. Right. You know, the same that line from SNL. If you're a diversity and inclusion educator, they've got a fever. The only prescription is more diversity and inclusion. It it doesn't doesn't make any difference. Um, And so how can you even have like how could you even have performance metrics?
1: Yeah, I noticed how they never have an actual metric for how much diversity is considered enough diversity. They'll just say that such and such group is underrepresented in this space. Well, when I was at Georgetown University, I talk a lot about, you know, my experience on campus. I was a pretty outspoken conservative and kind of saw firsthand where all of this was going. And there was this this programmatic response from the Georgetown administration to concerns that the university had previously, one of the former presidents of the university had previously owned slaves and sold them at some point. And there's a very complicated story surrounding it where it's not actually quite as bad as it sounds. uh, But uh, obviously that didn't fly with the progressives on campus. So they demanded all of these things from the university to make up for this historical connection to slavery. One of the items was that Georgetown needed to hire a, uh, they needed to hire enough black professors such that they were paying uh, salaries to black professors that was equivalent to the modern day uh, monetary value of the sale of the slaves. Now I did a little bit of rough math and basically they wanted the university to pay close to trillions of dollars in money to black professors, which is physically, financially impossible because no university has that amount of money. And also Georgetown already actually had an overrepresentation of black professors when you compared the percentage of black professors to the percentage of black people in the larger American population. So again, there's no logic that goes into these grievances. These are simply used as a way of Playing victimhood because it gives a sense of power in modern society, and also making themselves uncancelable.
0: Want to ask you more about Snowflake's Revolt, Amber Athey's uh, new book, which you should all get a copy of uh, when we come back here in a second. Also, want to ask you about the mental health crisis of young women in America. That this goes beyond the political divide. Everyone who looks at the numbers understands there is a a particularly for adolescent women, uh, females, uh, young girls, teenagers. There is a mental health crisis that when you hear the numbers of consideration of self-harm and other things is shocking. Something awful is going on in the country. We got to address it. We'll get back to that in a moment. Well, for everybody out there, how are your energy levels these days? Are you as fit and energetic as, you know, I don't know, the people that you see running around doing stuff all day long and getting after it in life? You will benefit from all the goodness of chalk. That's as easy as getting dialed into the right supplements that have been helping so many men and women in this audience. Look, last year I was able to introduce you to Chalk for the first time. C-H-O-Q. They make the most effective supplements that bring your energy levels back to optimum. They spent years looking for the right helpful ingredients and organize them into products especially made for men and women. So if you're looking for an answer that's a little more developed than your fifth cup of coffee in the afternoon, check out Chalk's Male Vitality Stack or the Female Vitality Stack. Each one is formulated to help maximize your everyday potential. And their website is very straightforward. C-H-O-Q, chalk.com. Use my name, Buck, when you make your first purchase. Get 35% off any chalk subscription for life. Not just your first purchase or your first year's purchase, but for life, 35% off. Chalk.com, use my name, Buck. That's chalk.com, use my name, Buck, and you'll get 35% off for life. You can cancel your subscription anytime, any time, but when you try this stuff and you love it, you're not going to want to cancel. You're going to want to get more. By the way Amber, you what are you what do you put in your coffee? What's your go? Do you drink coffee? I'm <laughs> uh, assuming you're a coffee drinker.
1: I do. I do. And I put a lot of really awful things in my coffee. I put Splenda and uh I will say I use dairy creamer, so I don't use the non-dairy stuff, but it's not a great coffee routine, I'll admit.
0: Creamer and Splenda, huh? Okay. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking about making this switch from from moo cow milk. To almond milk based on what i'm told is you know gut inflammation and, and health uh reasons but i i feel I like, like almond milk i feel like this just keeps changing all the time now like everyone's always just like oh well this is you know i started to get all excited i was like what about oat milk and now we're told that oat milk has a lot of oil and high fat content i, I can't mm-hmm. i can't keep it all i can't keep it all i probably should just drink my coffee black which because really what do I want? I want that coffee aroma. That That's tasty.
1: the safest choice. <laughs>
0: yeah, I should probably drink up. But it's bad for you. It stains your teeth. So see, there's no nothing that gets it all done out there. So how do we beat the uh, the woke mob? What do we do? I mean, do we, you know, we, we see them. We talk about how crazy they are. But it does feel to me like we um, we noticed this when they had already seized control of the most powerful companies. All of media, all of acad—well, not all of media, but all of social media, all of academia. Uh, obviously, Hollywood for a long time, the legal profession, increasingly law schools. So, what do we do?
1: Yeah, I mean, the real problem is you have to basically have an adult in the room who has institutional power, who's willing to say, "All right, enough. We're not going to appease you anymore." But because so many of these institutions were liberal long before the progressives came into play. You have people who are, one, sympathetic to these young activists, two, who are terrified of them because they know how crazy they are because they're ostensibly on the same side, and three, uh, really don't understand that these people don't really have power. I mean, to boomers who are in charge of companies or on boards or who uh, are editors in newsrooms, they think that 10 tweets is a major crisis. Like they think that is going to bring down the company. I mean, they really do believe that. So that's why these cancellation campaigns are so effective because it only takes a really vocal minority for these people to go running scared. And then of course they're afraid of being on the wrong side of the issue as well, because they don't want to be called racist or transphobic or whatever the word of the day is. They really think that is the worst thing in the world too. Um, So until you get the right people in charge, there's only so much that you can do. I mean, obviously creating alternative institutions is, is uh, a, one of the ways that you can kind of combat this, although it's not a perfect way because conservatives haven't really figured out the, the best way to uh, encourage boycotts um, for products that are good. They, they always wanna make everything really overtly political, which is not always the answer either. But on the media question, there's one simple thing that conservatives can do and that's to delegitimize the mainstream media by refusing them access. Um, I see over and over again that Republicans on Capitol Hill will call up the New York Times or the Washington Post and they give them their op-eds and their scoops and all of their information. And inevitably, when they get uh, poor coverage from one of these media outlets, they go running to independent and conservative media, begging them to clean up the mess. Well, how about you just don't give them information in the first place? because. You're giving them power by giving them that access. You are telling their readers and the rest of America that they are legitimate, that they have the ability to share information with them that they might not get elsewhere. So freeze them out, right? I mean, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis does this really well. His administration doesn't talk to these mainstream media outlets. They don't talk to people who don't give them fair coverage. And the result is that... I think they're they're probably much better off for it, one. And two, Floridians don't have to go to lying media in order to read anything original about the governor or anything new that's happening in their state. So I think that's a pretty good blueprint for how the rest of the country can help take the power away from organizations and media outlets that really are going to the woke.
0: I always was, at first at least, surprised that Donald Trump continued to talk to particularly the New York Times but also the Washington Post all all throughout his presidency. I mean he would give more access to New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman than almost anybody else. I think if you look at the White House visitor logs, I mean there might have been a few conservatives who would speak to him on the on the cell phone more or had more direct contact with him that way, but Maggie Haberman, she practically should have had her own her own room in the White House to stay over so she could continue the interviews the next day. Why was he doing that?
1: I think that Trump had this sort of nostalgia for when he was really considered a revered celebrity in the eyes of mainstream media. And particularly being from New York, you know, the New York Times did used to have this level of prestige where people wanted to be mentioned in it. They wanted to have favorable coverage in it. And I think Trump still believes that he can get that back. I, I think maybe he doesn't really grasp just how rotted from the core these media outlets have become. And it was a constant frustration of my time as a White House correspondent during the Trump administration. I mean, we would go in uh, to the briefing room and you would see the day after one of these media outlets, CNN, whoever it was, published just an egregious piece of fake news. For whatever reason, the communication staff would call them back for some type of background briefing away from the rest of the press. And continue to give them stories and scoops and access. And it was just mind blowing. Like they have just done you so wrong. They've treated you incredibly unfairly. They've lied about you and you rewarded them for it. How do you think that's going to change their behavior? It's not, you're just incentivizing it.
0: I want to come back and ask you about the uh, mental health, cri- health crisis facing young women in America right now. Um, uh, so we'll get to that Amber in just a moment. Uh, check out Amber's book, everybody. snowflakes revolt. For the T-Mobile subscribers out there, heads up. There's a data breach that exposed sensitive personal information of 37 million customers. Right after the New Year, cyber hackers grabbed data without notice. Could include customers' names, emails, billing addresses, and phone numbers. If exploited, cyber criminals can use this information to commit online identity theft. So if your info is involved, how will you know? I mean, they could pretend to be you and take out loans or credit cards in your name. Well, one way you can know is with LifeLock's help. Your online identity theft protection includes monitoring the web 24-7 for irregular activities and new account openings. If they see unusual activity in your name and you're a LifeLock customer like I've been for about six years now, you'll get an alert. That comes via text, cell phone call, email, whatever it takes to get you the information. It's important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives. And if you do become a victim of identity theft, a dedicated U.S.-based LifeLock restoration specialist will work with you to fix it. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but it's easy to help protect yourself with LifeLock. I've relied on them for years and you can too. Join now, save up a 25% off your first year with promo code Buck at LifeLock.com. That's LifeLock.com promo code Buck or call 1-800-LIFELOCK. Make sure you go to LifeLock.com. Use promo code Buck for that discount. All right, Amber, uh, the, the stats are stunning. There's a mental health crisis for young women in the country. Something like a third of them reportedly have considered extreme self-harm, perhaps even uh, up to suicide in the last year. A third of young women, I think the uh, the age range was like 14 to 18, something like that in the study that I saw. Um, what is going on? But why is this happening?
1: Uh, there's so many reasons. I mean, let's start with the obvious, which is the pandemic, right? I mean, for two to three years, these teens... Uh, girls, and boys too, were only communicating with their peers through social media. Uh, And social media, I mean, that leads us right to the next problem, right, which is social media. Um, The studies on the harms of social media, particularly to young girls, the statistics are egregious. I mean, they're addictive. They can lead to body dysmorphia. They can lead to depression because these girls are constantly seeing really warped and distorted visions of what being a girl is supposed to look like, of what uh, of what guys like to see in a woman, and it it breaks their brains. It, it makes them despise themselves. It's a, it's a really harmful uh, thing for any young person to be on, and for women already struggling with body image at a young age, it's truly devastating. It was now, female the other teenagers, part, by uh, the way.
0: Can I just, just give the statistics, uh, Amber, because I, I wanted to pull this up. Um, of of right. female teenagers. So I guess that's 13 to 18. I think it's 14 to 18. Um, 57. This is according to the CDC, uh, 57 percent say they are persistently sad. 30 percent said they have considered suicide nationwide. 24 percent have planned a suicide, and 13 percent have attempted suicide. I mean, those those are absolutely crisis level numbers. Sorry, continue.
1: No, it's 100% correct. And we've talked for years, I think conservatives at least have talked for years about the rather dire statistics about young men and young women are very quickly catching up. And when you dive deeper into this, what you quickly learn is that liberal young women in particular tend to have more severe mental illness and tend to have mental illness at higher rates. And there's a lot of potential reasons for that. Just a couple that I would point out are that one, uh, feminism has really taught women to suppress their natural desires and their different biology, and they want young women to desire to be like men. And when you have your internal self, your natural self telling you to do something, and you're actively rejecting that and trying to behave publicly a different way whether that's engaging in hookup culture or desiring to climb the career ladder over starting a family when you're young and being in a committed relationship that is so damaging to someone's ability to feel comfortable with themselves and to feel happy and like they have purpose in life. And then the second problem is that in liberal families, you see this really sick trend of parents basically passing on their own neuroses to their kids whether it's the panic over climate change, or their insistence that if you are struggling through puberty, that you might be a different gender. I mean, they really put these kids through a panic about the state of the world. I mean, these kids are often convinced that there are Nazis looking to kill them, lurking around every corner, that their rights could be voted away at any given second, that democracy itself is in danger. I mean, if you're someone who legitimately believes that, is it any wonder that you might want to go to the doctor looking for an antidepressant?
0: H- have you ever met somebody that you think truly and honestly was fearful of climate change? Like, I I see people talking about it in a way where they want everyone to think. But do you, have you ever had the personal experience of talking to somebody? Because I haven't. I've never, I've never to this day found somebody who will say to me, and by the way, I wouldn't include like on a CNN hit or something because that's performative, right? I mean, just a person walking around who was genuinely terrified of climate change. And yet you see all these people that'll say things like, I don't want to have kids because I don't want to bring kids into the world because of our CO2 emissions. And, you know, we're overcrowded, which the opposite is actually that we need more people. But that's a whole other (laughs) thing. Um, Have you ever met somebody that really that really believe that? I'm just curious.
1: I've thankfully never met someone like that, but I see them on social media all the time, particularly on TikTok. And there's this new, uh, I guess, younger, hipper version of Greta Thunberg now. And her name is Sophia Chiani. And she's been invited to the United Nations. She's received a whole bunch of awards. She has fellowships with various climate institutions. And she's, uh, I think, like a freshman in college that is of the belief, I, I mean, I think sincerely, that our world could disappear as we know it in the next five to 10 years because of climate change. And she's just this beautiful, clearly bright young person. And it's so sad to see that these kids get so wrapped up in what is an obvious lie.
0: I think it's fascinating that adults, adults wouldn't listen to a college freshman, and rightly so, by the way, about what the speed limit should be in the neighborhood. Like, you know, generally speaking, you're going to, as as an adult, you're going to discount the ideas. And certainly in the case of Greta Thunberg, she was like six, 15, 16 when she was started sailing around and lecturing everybody about, you know, how dare you and all that stuff. Why do they listen to somebody that they would on this issue, which is enormously complicated as much as they are neurotics about it, but they wouldn't listen to them on anything else? It just seems to me like it's debasing. It's debasing for an adult to be like, oh, let's let's worship this child who is going to lecture us all on climate issues.
1: Well, I think what they're doing is they're elevating children who happen to agree with them because the obvious response to people who criticize them is. Why are you going after a a kid? Why are you attacking a teen? I mean, that's what they said about Greta, right? So I think they're actually using them as basically human shields, which is exactly what they did in the pandemic, too. I mean, these are people who shamelessly abuse and use kids for their political agendas. During the pandemic, they had no problem uh, uh, using children as um, the punching bags for pandemic policy. And they kept saying, well, kids are resilient. They'll get over it. We have to protect grandma. So we're going to make sure that kids have to go to school in a mask where they have to attend Zoom classes for two years. And they were the ones who were most harmed by all of these restrictions, while a lot of adults got to, uh, even the ones with the most neuroses, got to live out more normal lives than their kids did. And there's something really sickening about that. And I think the same thing is happening with other political calculi.
0: So... We're gonna have no. There's not going to. There's gonna be a, a new Greta. I didn't know What's this person's name again? By the way, I didn't. I...
1: Sophia Kiani.
0: Sophia. You should
1: check her out. He, yeah. How do you
0: spell that? I've never. I've never heard of. This K person.
1: I K I A N N I. I believe.
0: I'm gonna have to. I'm she's gonna have to
1: check. a. She's a cuter version of Greta, <laughs> and she So, so basically,
0: they they have a. They they've now they've decided that the spokesperson for a climate catastrophe is going to be a. A young person who is um, uh, better looking is, is basically what they've decided. Yeah, she's, is this-
1: the, she's the new upgraded model.
0: <laughs> wow. I, I'd never I'd never heard of this before, but I, I will have to I'll have to check this out. I, by the way, I, I every adult and I mean this every single adult CNN everywhere else who sat down and had uh, did interviews with Goda Thunberg. Um, I do not. I refuse. I do not take them seriously on anything. Like to me, to me, it's the equivalent. They might as well have sat down and and interviewed, you know, a a chipmunk or like a tortoise or something like it's just what are you doing? You're asking a 16 year old about global economic and environmental policy. It was it was truly insane. You know, but you'll appreciate this. I remember I said that that adults who listen to Greta when she was doing her tour of the U.S. should be ashamed of how stupid they are. And a former Fox host, I will say that a former host, not somebody still there, started shouting at me saying that I was child bashing. So I actually fell really? into the fell into the left wing game of no, no, I'm making fun of the adults. First of all, I could have made fun of the, you know, the child. She was like 17 or 18 at the time. But I was actually just saying adults listen to the person are stupid, but some people are so desperate. To virtue signal their defense of children when it comes to Greta and you know all this stuff, not with the things that children do need to be protected from—masking, transgender ideology, sexualization in uh, Mm schools—but want to protect them from. No one's can say anything mean about Greta because she was a kid. It was crazy. The whole thing was insane. It was absolutely nuts.
1: It just speaks to this larger trend of the left really trying to steal innocence away from kids. Uh, They're on social media younger than ever. They're apparently involved in political activism on a national, if not worldwide stage, younger than ever. They can pick their gender. They're uh, supposed to be exposed to books that have pornography in them. Uh, They're supposed to bear the weight of the pandemic on their shoulders. I mean, again, it's not a surprise that you have this massive mental health crisis among young people. And we haven't even gotten into the pharmaceutical questions involved with things like antidepressants and birth control um, that young women are on more than ever. But the pathologies that exist among a really large segment of the population is harming kids uh, really significantly.
0: I want to ask you actually about the pharma side of this in just a second. So let's come back to that, Amber. Um, But the Tunnel to Towers Foundation does amazing work, and everybody should know about how they are honoring America's heroes. The foundation honors fallen and severely injured heroes and their families with mortgage-free homes. This year alone, hundreds of gold star and fallen first responder families with young children and our nation's most severely injured veterans and first responders are receiving homes. More than 500 homeless veterans received housing and services last year, and more than 1,500 are receiving houses and services this year. In this coming Memorial Day, all the brave men and women lost since 9-11 in the war on terror, having their names read aloud in a Tunnel to Tower ceremony in our nation's capital. Through the Tunnel to Towers 9-11 Institute, the foundation is educating kids in kindergarten through 12th grade about our nation's darkest day. Join Tunnel to Towers on its mission to do good. Please help America to never forget its greatest heroes. Join me in donating $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's T, the number two, T.org. Big Pharma, it's interesting. Um, There used to be this left-wing criticism of big pharma because they were like profiteers and corporatism and all this stuff. And then the pandemic came along and big pharma was not to be questioned under any circumstances. And we we know what happened there. Um, and now it seems like on the right, you're hearing criticisms of just the over medication of well all people, but particularly young women. And I hear this from the right. I don't hear this from the left. Why is that?
1: Well, the left is a, a big portion of the, of the group that's doing it, um, and I think it's because the left has been more overwhelmingly accepting of the idea that intense emotions of any kind are actually um, illness that needs to be treated with medication, and I'm not sure exactly why that is. I don't know if it's because uh, liberal adults are also more likely to be on these medications, so maybe it's become normalized for them. But shockingly, the New York Times actually did a really in-depth investigation on the overprescription of SSRIs for young women. It was about three months ago, I want to say, and they talked about the massive side effects that can come from using these drugs, mostly that it really messes with the, the firing of various hormones in your body and the way that you react to situations emotionally. Um, And and basically every part of your emotional response gets worked when you're on these drugs for any significant period of time. It's why you see these TikToks of these really flatly affected young women talking in monotone voices. They're unable to really express real emotion. And it's because they're on any number of cocktail of medications um, because they were told that being really sad or angry or angry was actually um, a problem with the a chemical imbalance in their brain, um, and there's questions now as to whether that uh, uh, understanding of depression or anxiety was correct as well. The medical community is currently kind of debating that um, that understanding of what depression and anxiety actually are. And I just think um, you know, outside of the side effects, maybe there's there's a lot of people who do really need these, but when you're prescribing it to anyone who describes who says to you that you are, you say to your therapist, for example, that you're feeling really sad about something that happened at school, it seems like the default is just to prescribe something. And from personal experience, um, I had a great loss in my family, and and I decided to go speak to someone um, just to kind of have someone to talk to outside of the situation. I didn't feel like I, you know, wasn't, that wasn't handling it well, so to speak. But the first thing that the um, therapist asked me was if I thought that I needed to be on depression medication. And I just was flummoxed by this. I said, well, I'm grieving. You know, something really terrible has just happened. But I don't think that I'm sick. Like, I think it's normal to be really sad and to have some difficult emotions when you're dealing with the loss of a family member. And I just thought that was so strange that that was the first question that was asked before any other assessment of my health or mental health, and I, it, if that's what's happening in therapist's office across the country, that's pretty terrifying.
0: I think that's. Uh, I think it's something that requires a whole lot more um, conversation, and and people need to focus in on this because I mean the number some something is off. Um, I know people say maybe it's you know church or religious attendance so down or so down or. The whole range of things. Social media, I think, is deeply unhelpful. Um, I think the reinforcement of of narratives of negativity constantly, whether it's through mm-hmm. the politics of racial grievance or the catastrophism of climate change or any number of things where people are just constantly being trained to be unhappy, really. And they don't realize it, but they're, they, you know, their brain, their neural pathways, are always going through these narratives of, Nothing is fair. Everything is rigged. Everyone's against me. I'm so unhappy. Everything sucks. If you train your brain to think that way all the time, turns out that's how you think about your existence.
1: You're spot on, Buck. I just read something in this vein in the Wall Street Journal yesterday where they were talking about the difference between why liberals tend to have higher levels of dissatisfaction with their lives and or mental illness versus conservatives And it's because of this mental framework of viewing everything as being outside of your control. You're trapped in a system that doesn't want you to succeed. Everything is working against you. Whereas conservatives will tend to say, uh, they tend to look at things more through a lens of personal responsibility. They recognize that there are things out of their control, but they try to focus just on the things that they can affect in their life. And they tend to brush off losses as not part of this larger systemic pattern that's intended to destroy them or keep them down um and these patterns of negative thinking on the left do really reinforce themselves and stack onto each other to the point where they get into this really deep hole that's almost impossible to dig out of
0: amber athey check out her book the snowflakes revolt and look for her work at the uh washington or at the spectator rather and she's the washington editor amber thank you so much for being with us appreciate it
1: thank you buck